Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. The Wings of Pegasus by George Chatterton. Chapter 6. Preparations for D-Day. The last exercise of any size had taken place in September 1943, since when the men had had little or no opportunities of flying. The situation at the time of reorganisation was, therefore, to say the least, dismaying. What I had was two wings, neither of which had had much experience of flying. Number one wing, operating with 38 Group, had only the training the RAF training schools had given the glider pilots. Number two wing, which had been following the 1st Airborne Division in Italy, was in an even worse state. One third of this wing had been on the Sicilian operation, but it had no flying for many months. Luckily, a number of glider pilots had been engaged in towing gliders across the Bay of Biscay to North Africa and had gathered useful experience as a result. However, the majority had not been on an airfield for six to nine months. It was an astonishing fact that the glider pilot regiment in January 1944 had had little or no training, yet here we were facing one of the major operations of our time, and this only six months ahead. Six months may seem to some a long while, but when one considers that in that space of time, 1,500 glider pilots had to be trained, exercised and fitted into a most complicated operation, it was far too short. Apart from anything else, only Ian Murray, who commanded Number One Wing, and myself, had any experience of what flying really meant. The average glider pilot had a little over 150 flying hours to his credit, and most of that in a training school. We had operational training programmes, but I knew that the officers who had to conduct the programmes had little more experience than the men they were to command. Yet they would have to set the men an example, direct their training and gather confidence as they went along. I was painfully aware also of the problems of the Royal Air Force, who not only had to be used for training the glider pilots, but able to give parachute training, and this prompted me to devise a scheme whereby instead of thinking in terms of flying hours, we thought in terms of lifts and landings for I felt that the most important part of glider flying was the takeoff and landing. Added to this, of course, was the most important of all, night flying. The takeoff was easy, but far more important was the landing. I therefore insisted that my HQ at 38 Group should constantly determine the number of lifts which had been achieved on the REF station. Another idea was the funnel system, which was evolved to meet the problem of a large number of gliders arriving over the target at the same time. In such an event, to avoid collisions and haphazard landings, the gliders would need to follow each other down as through a funnel onto the airfield or air landing strips. If the gliders arrived in a particular area, a given number of yards from the far end of the landing zone, and at a controlled height, they would have no difficulty in selecting a landing place within the zone since it could be calculated on the basis of distance of glide from the release height. At least, the system gave the pilots something to hang their hats on. The result of it was that landings improved, and although some of the pilots despised the funnel system, I'm quite sure they carried it in their heads with remarkable results. It must be understood that the task set was to land several hundred gliders at 30-second intervals on the battlefields. Our aim, therefore, was to put into the air as many gliders as possible, and for 38 and 46 groups to train themselves to manoeuvre this unwieldy force into a long stream, 
and finally run onto the target in such a way that the gliders could release and land as accurately as possible. While the glider pilots were receiving as much refresher training as possible, I had to think out a system that would satisfy the army that what we were doing would suit them when their troops arrived on the ground. The forces to be carried by gliders consisted of infantry battalions, tank squadrons, royal artillery and other arms, and these forces could not be landed all over the place anyhow. We had to have some practicable system for when they arrived on the ground or on the target they were attacking. To complicate matters, when trying to plan exercises to test our efficiency, we could not make glider landings away from our training airfields because of the money and time spent in retrieving the gliders. To overcome this difficulty, I produced the idea of using an overlay on the aerial photographs of the airfields we used. This overlay, a sheet of transparent paper, was placed over the photograph of the airfield and roads, fields, lanes and hedges drawn on it. This was then presented to the military commander of the exercise, who would state how he wanted his forces disposed on the area or airfield. The height of release of the gliders would then be agreed with the Royal Air Force. The glider pilot squadrons told the area in which they were to land, and each glider pilot given a spot to land on. Thus, infantry guns and jeeps could be placed on the airfield as though it were the landing zone in an actual battle. Under this system of briefing, training really made progress. The three organisations, the Army, the RAF and the glider pilot regiment, gaining confidence as they worked together that they would be able to carry out the tasks allotted them when actual operations began. The loading and unloading of gliders was most difficult, for when the horse glider was designed, such loads as jeeps and six-pounder guns had not been considered. This had been one of the great problems in Sicily. One of the most extraordinary stories of the Sicilian landing was that of the glider crew who, having landed in the far north of Sicily, found great difficulty in getting the jeep and gun out of their glider. They had, in fact, flown their glider across the Bay of Biscay, along the north coast of Africa, over the Mediterranean, and now, when they were on target, were unable to unload. At this time, in such a difficulty, it was the custom to put a belt of explosive round the tail and blow it off. This they did, but not only did they blow off the tail, but they also blew up the glider, the jeep, the ammunition, and in fact, everything. The remarks of the two glider pilots have not been recorded, but they can be imagined. With this problem on my mind, I remember one day sitting in a horse glider in one of the hangars at Netherhaven with the engineer officer of 38 Group. I'd been telling him this story, and as we sat there, I was staring at the stern bulkhead. It was then I noticed a number of bolts which anchored the tail of the glider to the main body. My God, I cried, do you think those bolts unscrew? I'll soon find out, answered the engineer officer, sending for an adjustable spanner. In a short time, the bolts were undone and pulled out to release the whole tail unit. This meeting, which revolutionised the whole method of unloading the horse glider, led to the soldiers' equipment, including, for the first and probably the last time, a spanner, rear glider unscrewing for the use of. And so the training went on, and still more ideas were thought up and tried out. We decided that it would be good to have target gliders. These were gliders with special markings or streamers, which on being landed at a particular target could be followed by others who would land as near as possible to them. Thereby, we hoped army formations could be landed near their rendezvous as one body. All these experiments and discoveries took time to try out, but at last we felt we were ready to begin large-scale exercises, which by February 1944 were in full swing. On the 2nd of March, the first large-scale mass landing was made at Welford Airfield. 97 bomber glider units took part, in which there were British and American troops as loads. It was immensely satisfying, as only three gliders failed to reach the target. The scale of these landings soon built up, 
and we had the satisfaction of seeing 154 land by daylight and 135 land on a standard flare path at night. Then, on April the 23rd, the greatest mass landings ever carried out in training was flown in by 38 and 46 groups, 185 gliders landing at Southrop, Bryce Norton and Harwell. This was the first time that number two wing and 46 group tugs had taken part in a major exercise and their performance was most creditable. Finally, moonlight landings of between 90 to 100 gliders were made with complete success. The climax of this type of flying was a mass night landing on an operational flare path. I shall always remember this landing. I took off as second pilot to Ian Toller from Bryce Norton. It was a magnificent night as the Great Armada rose into the darkness and soon we had crossed the countryside to the landing zone at Netheravon where a great stream of gliders were to land on a flare path which had been laid out by parachutists. The method of laying a flare path was for each parachutist to set out a number of small lamps in the shape of a letter T and as a rule the path was laid into the wind. For some unknown reason, possibly because the wind was slight that night, the flare path was laid into the opposite direction to that expected by the air crews. As there were some 150 gliders trying to land at the same time, the situation was nothing short of bizarre, half the pilots deciding to land in one direction and the other half in the opposite direction. Never could I have imagined such a sight as gliders bore down on the flare path from every direction. The miracle was that there were no collisions. I was now reasonably content that mass landings were more or less possible on the landing zones in Normandy. The glider pilots had reached an astonishingly high standard of flying in a very short time, and to achieve this, there had been a complete inter-service understanding. Thanks to the cooperation and wisdom of Air Vice Marshal Hollinghurst in allowing the glider pilot regiment to live and mess with the RAF, all that had been hoped for had been achieved. Both the Army and the RAF can be proud of the fact that inter-service rivalry, and all that goes with it, was completely buried, and an unsurpassed flying efficiency, the like of which had never been seen before, emerged. Now, I must turn to one of the more amazing experiments with aircraft and towing crews, the advent of the Hamilcar glider, the RAF crews who towed it, and the glider pilots who flew it. This Goliath came from the drawing boards of the General Aircraft Company. It was a huge aircraft, which weighed 14 tonnes with its full load, and had a wingspan greater than a Halifax or a Stirling. The height of the cockpit from the ground was well over 25 feet, and the pilots climbed up to it on a wooden ladder in the hull where they sat one behind the other, in tandem as it was called. The whole monstrous structure was made of wood and metal, and the hull was not unlike a square cave. Huge nose doors opened outwards to take such loads as Tetrarch tanks, light tanks, Morris trucks, 17 and 25 pounder guns, Bren carriers and jeeps. I remember deciding to try one of these monsters out, and arranging with Peter Cranmer, one of our top glider test pilots, to fly with me from Netheravon to Tarrant Rushton, which was to be the headquarters of the Hamilcar flights. I found the Halifax Mark V and the Hamilcar at one end of the airfield. The disparity in their size made them look unreal. I climbed up the ladder nervously and sat myself down in the front cockpit. It was a strange sensation, looking out at the huge wingspan at a great height from the ground, and even more strange was seeing the Halifax looking like a toy, ticking over far ahead with the thick rope lying on the ground between the two aircraft. Soon the tug pilot was calling through the headphones, the rope tautened, and we moved across the grass. As the airfield hurtled past, it seemed unreal and ridiculous. Then the Hamilcar jumped once, twice, and was airborne. She handled remarkably lightly in the air, surprisingly so, and then the Halifax became airborne and the whole combination was away. The flight was uneventful. 
we sailed down to the south coast calmly enough, and then arriving over the airfield at Tarrant Rushton, we released from the tug, and she was alone. How smoothly she flew. How the wind swished past the cockpit. How light she seemed to handle. It was remarkable to think that this huge, wooden monster had been built completely on spec. A masterly achievement by General Aircraft. We circled the airfield and turned into the runway. It seemed a steep descent, and as we levelled out, the great nose almost obliterated the view of the runway. She sailed, or rather floated, and then settled smoothly on terra firma. We experienced a great thrill of satisfaction as we climbed out of the cockpit. I chose Major Dickie Dale, DFC, to command the Hamilcar squadron, and with him went the majority of the pilots that had ferried the gliders across the Bay of Biscay, for they had at least 150 glider hours to their credit, more than the rest of the regiment. Training on the Hamilcars began in November 1943, but by January 1944, owing to bad weather, little had been done. Through the genius and drive of Group Captain Tom Cooper, DFC, and such flight commanders as Squadron Leader Buster Briggs, DFC, flying thereafter increased at a great rate, for it was realised that if the Hamilcar, with its immensely important loads of tanks and Bren carriers, was to be landed in support of the parachute and glider landings, much had to be done. And much was done, for in the period February to March, 1,200 lifts were made, as against 311 lifts to that date. The landing speeds were reduced from 105 to 75 miles an hour, and soon spot landings were introduced. Nearly 400 of these flights were made by night, and the flying standards rose to remarkable heights. In April, the mass takeoffs and landings were increased. I remember going down to Tarrant Rushton to witness the first ever air landing of tanks. The glider pilots had not before taken up these loads, consisting of a light tank and the tank crew. And as the gliders came into land, my heart was in my mouth. The last glider to come in, a Hamilcar, came in somewhat fast at about 110 miles an hour. She bounced, half took off again, landed again and bounced, then careered across the airfield and crashed into a group of Nissan huts which disintegrated. The two pilots in their cockpit remained on top of the rubble, but the tank which must have hit the building at 80 miles an hour, went straight on before coming to a stop some 50 yards away. I rushed over and found the tank covered in wood and tin and the remains of the huts. The driver's visor was open and he was handing out bricks and bits of old tin. Rather anxiously, I said to him, Are you all right? He looked up with a soot-covered face and said, Yes, but I'm covered in bloody muck. He must have been one of the fastest tank drivers in history. When the training of the Hamilcar squadron was finished, over 2,800 lifts had been made, which was an average of 50 lifts per glider crew. A superb effort. For this, credit must go to the Royal Air Force. Few knew how difficult it was to fly Halifax with a huge Hamilcar on its tail, and I am told that sometimes the pilot had little more than 10 miles an hour on his airspeed between stalling and flying on. It must be to the eternal credit of the Halifax crews that their calmness and courage never faltered. Throughout this training, there were only seven fatal accidents to the glider pilots, and three were carried troops were killed. Thank you for listening to my reading of Wings of Pegasus by George Chatterton. I hope you enjoyed it. If this has piqued your interest, there are six other audiobooks available to independent company members on our Patreon site, including The Ship by C.S. Forrester and Tank by Ken Tout. It's £5 a month, and on top of audiobooks read by me, you get unlimited access to exclusive content, weekly live streams, and early access to merchandise and other deals. To join, all you need to do is search patreon.com slash wehaveways. I'll be back tomorrow with the next episode of George Chatterton's Wings of Pegasus. 
I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts.